The Charles Adler Show starts now. Welcome back to the podcast. I want to go immediately to one of my go-to players over the years. He is the co-founder, along with Jen Gerson in Alberta, of the Pack, known as The Line. Matt Gurney is based in Toronto, and he's also the host of Canada Talks Mornings on Sirius XM. I'm a former Sirius XM alum and proud to have him on. And he's also a former Chorus alum of mine. And so we've uh, we've been doing stuff, a lot of stuff uh, for, for decades now. Uh, we went into a bit of a, a hiatus period, but uh, it's great in the podcast world to have you join me again. Matt Gurney, thank you so much for this. Always a pleasure. I've been sitting here in the basement since our last chat, just waiting for you to invite me back. I haven't moved in weeks. All right. So uh, from the basement, I wonder, I don't know whether you've read uh, the the latest uh, piece by Tom Mulcair. I mean, the Mulcair, former NDP leader, was never a fan of uh, Pierre Polyev and and Harper and all of that. But this is a, a scathing a piece uh, saying that, uh, yeah, the, the the glasses may be off and there's less brill cream, but it's still really greasy. It's still really demagogic, and it's still something he wants to warn uh, Canadians about. Do you want to comment? Well, as goes Tom O'Kara, there goes Canada. Um, if, if, that, if that's where he's coming down on this, I guess uh, Polyev's goose is cooked. Look, um, some of my conservative friends have been unhappy with me of late, um, Gee, who'd have thought? Um, but <laughs> what it's come down to, and uh, some of them have said to me that they don't think I'm giving them enough credit for uh, the fact that the latest poll, I think, had them up by 14 points over the Liberals. And not only in terms of national horse race numbers, but as you well know, uh, the the more granular breakdowns, conservatives are just wiping the floor with the Liberals right now. Yeah. If the polls hold true until the next election, just hypothetically, we're, we're not just looking at a conservative majority. We're looking at a potential liberal wipeout. And my conservative friends don't think I'm giving them enough credit for it because I have this annoying habit of saying that whatever Tom Mulcair might think of Pierre Polyev, whatever Charles Adler and Matt Gurney might think of him, this is not Pierre Polyev winning. This is not the glasses and the new hairstyle and, and, the, uh, and the, the new blue shirt. This is the liberals completely running out of gas and just sputtering to a complete halt. And... I, I have seen this happen to governments before, and it's theoretically possible that they get their heads out of it and they, you know, they, they, uh, they have a nice vacation and they, they hit uh, Jamaica for a week or something and they come back in, in battle form and then they're off to the races. But more, more often when a government goes into this kind of decline, it just, they wind up in the side of a mountain or a cornfield somewhere and they, no one is more surprised than them. So, Matt, I, w- I want to parse this a-, a little bit because, you know, we're on the same page as far as, you know, pissing off our, our, our friends and former conservative friends over the years. And I don't want to go over all of that. But I, I want to ask about uh, about this. Since we both agree that this is much more about the clock versus uh, Trudeau, people having uh, Trudeau fatigue, it's much more about that than people falling in love with uh, Polyev having less, uh, you know, grease, less product in his hair, uh, that stuff to me, is silly. We can agree on that, too. But here's my question. Is it possible that that the Trudeau government isn't on the right issues, right issues being affordability, focused especially on, on shelter? You're, you're living in Toronto. Nobody needs to give you a briefing on how expensive shelter has become. But I'm just wondering if it's not just about them not being on the issues, but the idea 
that Trudeau doesn't care about the issues. We can, we can talk until the cows come home about how uh, the Conservatives have an empathy problem with, with certain people in, in our society. But is it possible that the real story, the real horse race story here, is Trudeau's government is behind Polyev's Conservatives by 14 points because the Canadian people, writ large, whether it's in the crucial 905 area code or all of the other area codes, that the Trudeau government, uh, according to the people, don't care about their major issues. They don't find them sexy. They don't find them interesting. They don't think that they're responsible. Is that the issue here, a lack of empathy, Trudeau and the people? Um, I, I don't know if I would be as generous to the liberals as to say they only have one terminal issue right now. They seem to have a few, but I, I think the one you're identifying is a big one. And, you know, I said years ago, probably, I don't remember exactly when, uh, I think it was during his first majority term, that I think I had kind of cracked the Trudeau code. And I think it could explain his success, but I said at the time it was probably also eventually going to explain his failure. Some of us in life have to learn a few a few party tricks, right? Because we're not particularly good at any one thing. Maybe we're of average intelligence and good looks and humor and average work ethic. Some of us are exceptional in a particular area. And I thought in 2015, Trudeau was exceptional as a communicator. And he was exceptional as a personal communicator. I think the Liberal Party in that era, uh, 2015 and a couple of years after, had mastered the digital social media technologies better and faster than any of the other Canadian parties did. And I think what we have been seeing in recent years is that Mr. Trudeau had an exceptional talent in a window of time, but he doesn't have a lot of diversity of talents. And when one thing stopped working for him, he didn't basically go, well, what's next? He basically said, I'm going to keep trying to communicate sunny ways like it's 2015 and that we don't have an economic crisis, that we don't have a, a housing and a cost of living crisis, that we don't have a land war in Europe and that we didn't have a plague. And along the way, this is a politician, a prime minister, as any as anyone would who's accumulated the usual baggage and, and upsets of eight years in office. And I keep waiting to see this new strategy come out from uh, the prime minister, his key advisors, the prime minister's office, the cabinet. And they're just trying the same thing over and over. And this includes the charm offensive, which I don't think is working anymore. It also, I think, includes the defensive tactic. You know, I think I, I've had a feeling for over a year now, and I put this in writing, so I'm on the record that this is a government that's in terminal decline. They're out of gas and they they seem lost and I don't think they understand it. But I think probably the moment this really crystallized in my mind was when a pack of Ottawa reporters chased uh, Marco Mendocino through the halls of parliament like he was some kind of a wounded animal and they took him down. And all he had to answer with was the usual platitudes and bromides of, well, we're committed to getting answers for Canadians. And they just tore, they just tore him apart. And these are guys who politically, and this is a weird quirk of this government, they seem to have a two or three week reaction time before they ever understand that anything has happened. And I guess that's just how long it takes for the brain trust and the PMO to like process new information and then come up with a plan for it. It seems to be getting longer. And they seem to be getting less able to do it. So I keep hearing liberal friends of mine say, we have a communications problem. We need to fix our communications. 
I don't think this is a communications problem. I think the problem is that they're only communications and they have no other cards to play. And the comms game is played out. Okay, so Matt, uh, we know that the conservatives spend a lot of time with their base, and they, there are many reasons for that. One, they, they think that is a, a a way that's working for them. The horse race numbers you pointed out a few moments ago shows that maybe the conservatives have a point. Maybe focusing like crazy and even pandering to the base is working for them. Certainly it works for them in terms of clicks on social media, and it absolutely, no question about it, works for them in terms of, of raising funds. So they have raised more than all of the other parties uh, combined. It's not even close. So base strategy is working for the conservatives. Is it possible that a liberal weakness is paying too much attention to the base because the base, at least the base that's in touch with me and likely you as well, are telling me that Polyev is absolutely unacceptable. He can never be prime minister. He will never be prime minister. As soon as the Canadians figure things out, and Mulcair was sort of on the, on that page earlier today, as soon as Canadians figure out who Polyev really is, they may not love the prime minister, but they will again vote for the prime minister. That is the message from the base. Is it possible that the political party called the Liberal Party and the government known as the Trudeau government is paying too much attention to the base? It is. It absolutely is. Now, <laughs> the communications um, flow between Trudeau and his inner circle and some of the more activist part of the base, I've never been entirely sure which direction those communications go. Um so I don't know if the base is propping up Trudeau or if Trudeau's stringing the base along. I'm not honestly sure which one it is. But look, I have not seen this much confidence from a group of political insiders since the Harper Conservatives in 2015 or the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. There really does seem to be a sense that this guy is just, we hate him so much, everyone must. And if we just hate him enough, and if we're angry enough about Polyev, if we just say this guy is a bastard and bad and all these terrible things, and if we mean it with sufficient sincerity, then 40 million Canadians are going to show up at the ballot box, including the children, apparently, because that would include the 40 million, and they're going to vote against him. And they're looking at the polls here. And again, like it's not the horse race numbers that are interesting. Polyev is out polling Trudeau two to one among under 40s. It's pro I don't think it's probably quite that dramatic, but it's a 50 to 100 uh, percent advantage there. Mr. Trudeau's down to boomer women. I love boomer women. They're great, great people. You can't win an election with only boomer women. And I don't know. And I, look, again, you've seen this with governments before. I've seen this with governments before. You got to know what your feedback loops are. And I don't know what the PMO is using these days to ascertain what reality is. And you have seen it. I've seen it. Politicians, every once in a while, you can almost see it happen when they just become unmoored from objective reality. And I remember in, in 2018, uh, when the Wynn liberals, uh, friends of mine in the Wynn campaign were telling me, yeah, it doesn't look great. The polls aren't good, but the response at the doors is fantastic. We're really getting some traction. The fundraising is up. People are seeing through Ford. And then the next thing you know, like curveball wins conceding the election five days before the election. And again, no one seemed more shocked than my liberal friends. So call it what you want. Call it like partisan blinders. Call it bunker mentality. I don't know. But I, I think there may be a case of it going on here. And you've probably been reading over the last couple of days. Althea Raj had a great column in the Toronto Star where she was talking about the discontent uh, among the liberal caucus who seemed to have been 
the last human beings in the world to have discovered that Justin Trudeau doesn't listen well or take good criticism effectively. And like you sweet summer children in the liberal caucus, like haven't you noticed this yet? And they're all like, well, we hope he listens to us at the upcoming convention. Okay. I hope for things that aren't going to happen too. I'm still hoping for my NHL career. (laughs) Any day now, I'm going to get snapped up in free agency. And barring that, maybe a tour on the space station, but I don't know, man. Um, I I still think it's possible the liberals win if Polyev flames out, but I, the liberals just increasingly to me seem to be not only in trouble, but oblivious to the fact that they're in trouble. And that's a whole other kind of trouble. So look, I mean, uh, to me, maybe it's uh, the showbiz background. I don't know. But to me, everything is a brand. And uh, the, the brand, the Trudeau brand was really cool with millennials. Pardon me, but that's what I look at because they're the biggest uh, voting group. So if, you, if, you're not, if you're not cool with the millennials, if you're not servicing the millennials, you're not going to be prime minister. Something about Polyev is servicing the millennials. So let me get off Trudeau and get back to Polyev here. Um, just putting aside our own view that it's not about Polyev, it's only about Trudeau. Let's just work the other side of the street here. Is there something that you see in Pierre Polyev, who happens to be a millennial, is there something about him that connects with millennials in a way that Trudeau clearly isn't right now? Yeah, I was talking with a, a conservative earlier in the week, and it was just a friend, just a chat after the convention, wanted to check in on how we thought it went. And uh, I told him something, and he just laughed. And I said, I haven't figured out yet if you guys are geniuses or just incredibly lucky. Mr. Polyev is well positioned on the issues that right now are animating Canadians. Cost of living, inflation, spending, uh, housing in particular. He has been talking about these things for years. And, you know, if it comes down to a war of the ads where uh, Mr. Polyev is putting what he was saying two years ago against what uh, Trudeau was saying two years ago, Polyev's going to win that one. Again, I don't know if that was incredible political calculus or dumb luck. I, I don't. And, and certainly no one on the inside of the CPC wants to tell me. Um, but I, I think this is a moment for Pierre Polyev. I think every once in a while, politicians get lucky where the brand, as you said, um, is exactly right for the time. And I think without wanting to take away anything from Mr. Trudeau and his 2015 campaign, I think he, he, his brand was right for that moment, right? Like, you know, Canadians were a bit tired of the Harper years. Uh, the Harper government was out of gas. They were, they were turning nasty because they didn't have any ideas. So they started uh, to pick wedge fights to try and uh, motivate the base instead of to appeal to uh, the middle. And Mr. Trudeau came along and Sonny wazed himself into a majority. Um, Pierre Polyev might be well positioned for this moment where he can go go to hell himself to a majority because I think people are angry out there. And I think I'm just old enough. I, I, I like not to think of myself as being too old yet, despite all the random back pain. But um, people even... F- three, four, five years younger than me are in a completely different place in terms of housing costs, job security. I kind of feel like, um, you know, you've heard the expression that pulling the ladder up after yourself. I didn't pull the ladder up, but I think the ladder incinerated a year or two after I climbed it. And there are friends of mine who are very similar to me demographically, very similar in terms of age and family aspirations, education, and it would be impossible for them to buy a home. And I'll be honest with you, I couldn't buy my home today. I just couldn't do it. I like, I would 
it would be impossible for me to buy the home I'm currently sitting in based on its current market value without me tripling my income. And here, Polyev, again, by, by either by fluke or foresight, he's the man for that moment. And I, I don't think the liberals are prepared for that yet. And if I can slip in one more thing, I know I've been talking a lot. I think one problem the liberals have right now is that they've convinced themselves they're the victims of bad luck. And I think if you, it, I, I honestly believe, and I try to keep an open mind and talk to members of every party, the version I'm hearing from liberals basically goes, we're victims of wild cards we could have not foreseen or avoided. Donald Trump presidency, Putin invades Europe, inflation, COVID. And I think there's there's truth to that. Like, yeah, like they're 100% right about that. But I also think that the liberals tend to think that that's the entirety of their problems and not that they've run a government that has made dumb decisions, that has pissed people off, that have had very public policy flops, that have rubbed people the wrong way, that have become tone deaf on issues here. If you're convinced the only thing you've done wrong is to have been there when bad things happen to someone else, you're not going to be able to save yourself. So I've got this uh, theory based on what happened in 2015. I felt that uh, Harper, and I was a Harper supporter, so I'll just uh, you know lead with that. I don't want to pretend I wasn't who I was. Uh, so I was a Harper supporter for a long time. But, but I felt that Harper was getting darker and darker. And, uh, you know, the, the barbaric uh, practices hotline and, and just all of the, all of the ads, um, I was supposed to be in fear of, um, of, of a, a small handful of women uh, wearing Muslim religious garb, uh, you know, making a vow to, to, to Canada. Uh, you know, their, 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 their eyes were covered. They, their, 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 yeah, they're, they're, they were they were they were covered up. What what is it? I'm, I'm sorry if I'm missing it. Is it the niqab? The niqab wearing the niqab? I think yeah. All right, so they were wearing niqabs uh, while they were uh, swearing an oath to Canada, even though everyone admitted at the time, as you know, to the extent that this was an issue, and I guess the conservatives wanted to make it an issue. Everyone admitted at the time that they had shown their driver's licenses, and you can't have a niqab on when you're taking your your photo to get your your license. I don't care what province you're in. So they had shown their photos, uh, their their IDs. There was no question they were women, and there was no question about who they were. But nevertheless, Jason Kenney and and some others decided to make an issue of this. Anyway, uh, Trudeau uh, didn't take it uh, seriously. On the campaign trail, he, he sort of gave the impression that uh, the conservatives are paranoid and they're seeing a terrorist behind every bush. And, and, and that seemed to really be in touch with the time. So my theory at the time was that there are, are dark times and there are sunny times, and you've got to be in touch with the times in order to win. And I just thought that the conservatives misread it. Um, they, they saw lots and lots of darkness, and of course their base were giving them that feedback loop. But I didn't think I, did, I wasn't a Mr. Sunnyways person. I, that that didn't touch me at all. But I did feel that Canadians in general were a, had a sunnier disposition than the Conservative Party, and I think now uh, we're in a situation. I'm not happy about this, just as a Canadian, but I think Canadians have a darker disposition right now. Than the Liberal Party. So regardless of how much uh, uh, the, the Liberals and others may want to disparage the Conservatives for being too dark, I think Canadians are connecting more with the darkness than they are with the sunlight, if that makes any sense. I wrote a, a line in a column you mentioned a minute ago. You said sunny disposition, and I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I there's a line in a column I wrote 
uh, not long ago, a couple, maybe a year or two ago. And I remember it because it keeps getting quoted back to me by random people who tell me, I really like that line you wrote in the column. And what I said was that it's hard to maintain a sunny disposition when life is repeatedly punching you in the gonads. And I think that we as Canadians, and I think the whole world, nothing unique to us, we've been through some dark times. Like, you know, I cannot discount the possibility, and I hope this is not the case, but I couldn't prove it's not, that human civilization peaked in like January of 2020. And that a lot of accumulated issues have piled up since then that are going to, at the very least, put some downward pressure on our on our happiness, our quality of life, our standards of livings, our safety, our longevity. I I try to think in longer terms, and I think I'm a long-term optimist. I'm a Trekkie. I think in 300 years, we're all flying around in jumpsuits on starships. But <laughs> in the meantime, I have to, like... I don't live 300 years from now. Like I got to get through the next six months. And, you know, one of the things that I think that people haven't been honest with ourselves about is how many Canadians locked in a mortgage when COVID hit and that mortgage resets in about 14 or 15 months. And they want, or they're going to go from 1.8% on that mortgage to six or seven. I don't know what the rates are going to be. Hey, maybe five, maybe the rate situation has improved and come down a little bit here. You're going to have Justin Trudeau out there going, I'm the guy who takes climate change seriously and remember all those vaccines I procured. And he's going to be telling this to the guy who just saw his monthly interest payment on his mortgage go up 300%. And Pierre Polyev is going to be the guy at the time going, I was the guy warning Trudeau that this would happen while he sneered about monetary policy. Look, I, I think the one thing I will add and here I'm going to totally invalidate everything you and I have said over the last 20 minutes or so. You and I are in the business of telling people big thoughts and why they matter. It's also just very possible that there's absolutely nothing happening in Canadian politics today that cannot be explained with the following sentence. Justin Trudeau has been prime minister for eight years. Like I, 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 like, I make my daily bread by convincing people I have interesting things to say about things that matter. But sometimes the answer might be simple. You and I have both seen it with politicians, with athletes, with almost any kind of professional. There comes a time when, you're, when your day is up, and it's the rare one among us who can admit that to ourselves. And I don't know if Justin Trudeau can admit that to himself. We'll see. And apparently the most docile people in the world who seem to be the, uh, the Canadian Liberal Caucus. I used to think the most docile people in the world was the population of Ontario, but now I'm starting to think the that the Liberal Federal Caucus might actually slightly edge the average Ontarian. We'll see if they read the Riot Act here. Um, They're talking to reporters, they're talking to columnists, but are they going to talk to the boss? Uh, Look, it's entirely possible. uh, You know, in my most cynical moments, I I see politics as just another TV show and generally not a good one, and uh, generally one that uh, the voters want to cancel, they want to change the channel. And it's possible that after eight years, especially uh, during the the pandemic, when the prime minister was getting uh, too much exposure every single day, it's possible that the eight years is, is feeling like eighteen years for for some people. And it wouldn't matter right now whether you know it was Stephen Harper, Andrew Shear, Aaron O'Toole, uh, pick pick one. Uh, it, it might not matter uh, who the opposition leader is. It's a different channel. It's a different show. Let me get to a different show that's going on right now, and it's a desperate one. 
in Alberta. Tomorrow I'll be having a, an emergency a doctor on from, from Edmonton uh, who uh, was a regular and consistently bang on when it came to the, the pandemic. I'm going to bring him back uh, for this one. Um, everyone in Alberta is riveted to what is happening to children, scores of children being sent to hospital with E. coli infection. Now, just to be clear, all of us have E. coli. All of us need E. coli. We actually do need it in our colons. We don't need it elsewhere in our bodies. When something goes haywire, the E. coli can move from the colon into the rest of the body, and that's what's been happening uh, to these children. Uh, the health authority in Alberta uh, has traced much of this to a particular kitchen that uh, several daycare centers in Alberta have been using. Uh, the kitchen has uh, some, some substandard stuff going on, and that's a Canadian understatement. The substandard stuff includes live cockroaches. Matt Gurney, are you thinking about this at all? Hard not to think about. Um, after a, a couple of years of it being closed uh, because of uh, staffing disruptions and then supply chain disruptions and just COVID-related disruptions, the cafeteria at my kid's school is reopening, in fact, next week. And they're really excited about that because they're going to be able to go and buy French fries and cupcakes and things. And for like for elementary school kids, that's exciting. But I'm thinking about this now, right? Because um, you, it's going to sound like I'm saying something way off topic, man. But like, do you have any idea how hard it is these days to get your driveway sealed or to get your roof fixed or to get your car tuned up or to, to, to see a doctor? Ever since the pandemic, like we've seen how threadbare the sinews of a lot of the services we rely on in this country are. And it's looking like now, and I did catch a little bit of the press conference on Tuesday, uh, that there were warnings that this kitchen was substandard and that the things that we expect to happen didn't happen. You know, food inspection ought not to be political. And so much of public health got politi politicized during COVID for a mixture of good reasons and really stupid reasons. But, you know, food inspections was something Theodore Roosevelt was figuring out in the 1890s. Like he had this revolutionary idea that perhaps our food should not be full of poison and that we should have standards and that we should have you know, meaningful consequences and inspection regimes for this year. You, you can convince me libertarians are right about a lot of stuff, but I get a little prickly about like making sure food facilities for children are being properly monitored here. And I don't know who dropped the ball. I don't know if this, I, I don't, and I, I don't want to speculate on this. I'm watching this, but I want to let the, the process um, in Alberta play out uh, according to the, the law. But what we're looking at here is quite literally a nightmare scenario. You send your, you send your kids the, the, the distillation of all your hopes and dreams. You send them off to a place that they love, where their friends are, where they come back from every day in a good mood. It's the only place in the world you're comfortable sending your kid. And they get poisoned. And I don't know how you explain that to a kid. I don't know how you explain that to a parent. This is quite literally the stuff of nightmares. And, you know, my own family had a, had a brush with E. coli, my, my late grandfather, when he was, uh, uh, I, I was born, but he was still a young, healthy guy, recently retired, golfing all the time. I uh, went, went, went out for dinner and had a bit of undercooked food and spent 10 days in an intensive care unit as a fit adult. Thinking about what these kids are going through is something that um, it sounds like sounds cliche, but no, I, I have lost sleep thinking about this, right? Just 
the timing of it, all these reports coming out when my kid's cafeteria opens either next week or the week after. I'm not sure which one it is. What, what do you say to the parents? What do you say to the kids here? And how, how, how do you make this right? How do you restore faith? I, you, you and I have talked a little bit about disposition, the sunny disposition, right? I think Canadians are missing a lot of faith right now in each other, in our institutions, and in our politicians. And the, the, the grim part is, Charles, I can't tell them they're wrong to feel that way. It's been a tough, been a tough time. The, uh, the chief doctor, the chief medical officer uh, of the Alberta Health Authority, AHS, it's known, uh, only today, uh, after almost a week of this crisis of kids being literally poisoned by, by their food, uh, it took him a week to, to call a, a news conference. And when he was asked about the timing, he said he, he didn't think there was an urgency for it. I mean, in my, my, my humble opinion, I mean, you know, it's urgent that they have him replaced as soon as possible because, you know, this is the guy, uh, you know, this is this is the horse that, that didn't finish. How on earth, I mean, you know, you're paying some attention to it, mostly because, not just because you're a Canadian, because you're a parent, I'm, I'm paying attention to it for the same reason. But how on earth does the, the head of the, or at least the chief doctor, the chief medical officer, how, how does he come to this conclusion? that it only today became an emergency when scores of kids have been in emergency for days. How does that happen? All I can hear in my head right now is the sound of a mob with pitchforks and torches. Um, I don't know. And like, like I said, said, old friend, like something is, I don't want to weigh into the whether or not Canada's broken debate, but I think we have some evidence here that there are institutional breakdowns in this country where, reasonable expectations are somehow proving beyond the service capabilities of the government here. One of the things, and this is going to try and bring some actual measured thought to this because everything you just told me made me want to throw stuff. But one of the things we saw during the pandemic, and this is something my colleague Jen Gerson and I talked about the line a lot uh, during the, especially the early phases I have no doubt that the people who work in our public health agencies are dedicated professionals, well-educated, and um, fully informed with the latest science, but they desperately need someone to airdrop even a reasonably competent communicator in with them there. guy. And you, you and I, I mean, you, broadcaster, journalists, whatever, pundits, whatever you want to call us, we're communicators. And someone needs to be in the feedback loop with these guys saying to them, you can't spend a week not saying anything when the news is filling up with stories of six-year-olds whose kidneys have been destroyed. Like, and what's, it's incredible to me. And you see this occasionally with um, a, a reporter will feel naughty or saucy and they will send in an innocuous question to a government official. And then they will then file access to information requests to see the process of how their innocuous question gets answered. And you find out it's 47 bureaucrats generating 3,000 pages of correspondence, and it takes three weeks. And then the answer ends up being like, yes, we support human rights. And there, there's something where there's an old saying that I've always laughed at, although I find it less and less funny, which is that the bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy. Entire careers now seem to be lived in a Canadian public service apparatus that has very politely and conscientiously neutered accountability. Accountability, it's very, it's, it's uncouth. It can, it can result in hurt feelings and conflict and confrontation. 
wouldn't we all just be better off without it? And, you know, in Ontario right now, and I know I, I don't want to derail this, but you've been following the, the Greenbelt scandal, right? Sure. And uh, so there was this great line where the now departed housing minister said recently, I take responsibility, you know, the buck stops with me. And it occurred to me that in this moment in Canadian history, in 2023, that taking responsibility seems to be limited to standing up in, at a lectern and intoning the words, I take responsibility. It's like it's it's like a it's like a talisman. Like once once you say those words, ta-da, responsibility is taken. The buck is stopped. So I don't know how we start to fix these problems until we start returning some natural predators into the Canadian government ecosystem. Um, but I I don't see any I don't see any desire for that to happen. Right? It's I said a minute ago, that line from my column where just life is repeatedly punching us in the gonads, we're getting angrier, but I, I haven't seen any sign of systemic change where we're going to demand better from the people we nominally trust to protect us. Matt Gurney, the uh, Prime Minister's uh, plane uh, broke down uh, this week in India, and some people want to have a, a good laugh about that. But, you know, I'm not I'm not one of these Canada's is broken people, but yeah, there are some institutions that are are rather afraid, and um, and they they need, as you say, to get the natural predators back into into the system, and to get real responsibility happening. But it just seems to me that in reading our friend Murray Brewster on the CBC site today, uh, talking about national emergency. Now he's not talking about the plane being a national emergency, but it goes along with everything else. You know, so so much of the Canadian military equipment is broken. There's no argument against that. It just is. And Brewster is making the point, he's been a, a defense uh, specialist in, in journalism for, for decades now, C, CP and now CBC. Uh, Brewster's making the point, and I think this is a point that you've made from time to time, that one of the issues is the public. The, the, the public doesn't appear to take national security seriously. Now, I think, I could be wrong, I think one of the reasons for that is the public believes that ultimately, when it comes to protecting the perimeter of North America, the United States is large and in charge. What's your take? Uh, yes, but I, I would add to that that I, I don't limit my concept of national security simply to military defense. I, it, it includes military defense, but it also includes things like public health. It includes public safety. It includes uh, an effective national security apparatus where critical federal officials check their emails on a at least monthly basis. Like all of these things are part of a pattern. You know, I, I, I am ready to go at any given time to make my kids a school lunch, to answer a, a, a time sensitive email, to take the trash out every Thursday, but I'm not ready to do things that I don't think are going to happen, like make contact with an alien race or fend off a zombie apocalypse. And it seems to me like Canadian officialdom has just decided that an entire spectrum of kind of plausible and foreseeable problems are just never going to happen here. Why? That's Canada. When does when does when do bad things ever happen here? You know, in the early in the pandemic, uh, very early in the pandemic, Canada developed on the fly and in a matter of days, and it wasn't perfect, but it was good. An entire system of federal transfer payments to support individuals and businesses who were otherwise going to be financially ruined. And it was my, my friend, Andrew Potter, who's a professor at McGill University, who I think actually nailed the reason for that. Governments specialize. 
they get good at the things they value. And because of the nature of Canadian governance and federalism, we're good at cash transfers. The federal government is good at transferring money from either government to individual or federal to another jurisdiction of government. And when we had to improvise something on the fly, we had the talent set to do that. But then you look around and it's like, who in this country is worried about military threats or who is keeping an eye on which hostile foreign governments are intimidating the families of our MPs? There's no one. And, you know, again, as, as a guy who's been writing about these issues for a year, like Murray and, and a fairly short list of others, there's like 10 national security experts in this country. Like the reason you see the same names quoted in every CBC or Globe and Mail or National Post article is because it's a short list and we kind of just cycle through them to keep up appearances. But there is not a large knowledge base of people in this country who think about these things. And very few of the people who do have decided to make government service a career. We are a country that is, uh, as I wrote in a column a couple of years ago, I wrote our expectations are a problem. We have grown up in the most prosperous, peaceful, stable, happy, pleasant land. We've had a 75-year winning streak, and I think it's lasted just long enough for entire generations of Canadians to think it's normal. It's like gravity. It's like the sun rising in, uh, in oh God, I'm blanking on it. Where does it rise? In, in, in the east and setting in the west. Yes. Um, <laughs> it, like the idea of telling a Canadian, you know, we might have kinetic military threats in our Arctic. We might have cybersecurity threats. We might live in an era where things like climate change and rapid global transportation are going to result in more pandemic threats where, you know, warming temperatures are bringing ticks further north. So Lyme disease is going to be a problem in places it wasn't before. And Canadians blink and look at you and go, I put a maple leaf flag on my backpack when I'm in Europe. Like, like it's like, oh, okay. And it's like, well, no, there's, there's like a ton of like rare earth minerals up in the Arctic and the Chinese would probably like them. And Canadians look at you and go, Terry Fox, like, like we, we have lost a habit of thinking that previous generations of Canadians didn't have. Look, probably some of this is unavoidable. My kids, God bless them, are flaky. I love them and I hope they never listen to this podcast, but like. <laughs> They are they are like the fourth generation in a Gurney family that's been doing okay. So like how how long does it take a, a windfall of money to ruin a family? Well, the first generation work for it and they value it. The second family learns from at the knee of their parents how how every dollar has value. The third generation knows that like Nanny and Papa were farmers once before they invented the next killer app. And like the grandkids are like, they're at Wimbledon and, and that's all they do. They just go to like tennis matches. And I think as a country, kind of the same dynamic is playing out here where we are now the third or fourth generation out from the last time this country faced either a military or an ideological threat. And like when confronted with the fact that like foreign countries are putting our citizens in the ringer. All we have is like, like Tim Horton ads running in our head where it's like, well, remember that ad where there was the guy who didn't speak English at his kid's hockey practice and someone gave him a double double. Like, this is how we respond to threats. (laughs) So I don't know, man. Like, like I said, I'm, I'm an optimist on a 300 year timescale. Canadians 
take the world seriously to some extent. When you're a Canadian, you always have to throw in that to some extent because yeah. we don't want to be able to speak for everybody because we know that there's some some knobs who don't take the world seriously. But Canadians tend not to take themselves seriously. You are the quintessential Canadian, Matt Gurney. I want to thank you for, for so many things, the, the, the Substack, your SiriusXM uh, broadcast. But I also want to thank you for doing something that so many of us who are middle-aged and a little beyond uh, cannot do, and I'm one of those who cannot do what I cannot do. I cannot remember most of what I've written and much of what I've said. And you've got an excellent memory for the things that you've created. Thank you for creating them and remembering them. Well, you're very welcome. And you'd be shocked how much of my memory is just Tim Horton's ads from the early 1990s. <laughs> but I guess there's a little bit left over for my columns. Well, thanks for the double-double today. Matt Gurney of SiriusXM Canada Talks and the tremendous Substack uh, that he has uh, created with Jen Gerson in Alberta. Matt Gurney's in Ontario, and it's called The Line. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast, The Charles Adler Show. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.